Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we may go on more tangents tonight. We're going to start diving into Paul. And before we actually get into his letters, what I'd like to do is just talk about Paul, the letter writer, because we're going to be, you know, we did Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then we're going to start Romans, and we're just going to be in Paul for like a while here. So we need to figure out uh, what this whole business is with Paul writing these letters. Now let's talk about genre for a moment. What was the genre of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Genre. It's a long time ago. I re- I'm trying to remember they are called the four Gospels, okay? Gospels, not the Gospel, but you've got the four Gospels, okay? And so those are narratives that tell the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, intermixed with a lot of um, parables and teachings. Um, Acts, what genre is Acts? You remember that one? It's a history. It's the only history book in the New Testament, so it's, 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 an, it's in a category all by itself. Now we move into the third genre, which technically is called epistles. If you don't like the word epistles, use the word letters, okay? It's the fancy word epistles, not apostles, but epistles. It's letters, okay? So Paul, Paul's not the only one that writes letters. We've got James, we've got Peter, and we've got Hebrews, which I would argue that Hebrews is more of a sermon than it is a letter. But when we get to Hebrews, we'll talk about that. So let's talk about Paul, the letter writer. Characteristics of Paul's letters, okay? Um, They were private letters intended for public use. Now, let me ask you a question. When you send a private email, because most people don't write letters anymore, how many of you still actually write letters? Some of you still write letters, which is good. Do you normally send it to a person with the the intention that the whole world is going to read it? It's usually a private letter, okay? What happens when you write a letter to the editor? Is that meant for public consumption? Yes. Okay, so Paul is writing private letters. Okay, so he's writing to specific churches. He's writing to specific groups of people. But these aren't just meant to be kept by themselves. They're meant to be public. They're meant to be read out loud. As a matter of fact, here's what would often happen. A courier or a person would come to the church, let's say in Ephesus, and bring a letter from Paul because let's say Paul's in prison. And the whole church would gather and the pastor of that church or the elder or whoever would stand up and they would read Paul's letter all in one sitting publicly, orally, for the entire church to hear in one setting. So one thing you need to remember about epistles, letters, they, we oftentimes when we preach through them, we break them up into paragraphs. They are meant to be read at one big setting so you can get the whole theme. Okay, So they're private letters intended for public use. Uh, they're not dogmatic treaties. It's not like Paul sat down and was like, I'm going to write a dogmatic treaty on everything theological, except for Romans. It's probably the closest. But they're not private personal letters either. So he, he mentioned 65 different people in his letters. If you go back and count up all the people he mentions in all of his letters, there's 65 different people that he knew in these churches that he's writing back to. Okay, They have an oral style, meaning... Like I said, they were meant to be read out loud. So let me give you a little, um, a little lesson or a little, a little assignment. Go pick one of the short ones like Philippians or Galatians and read it out loud to yourself in one sitting. 
then you'll really get the feel for what the letter's supposed to sound like. Most of us don't read out loud, do we? We read silent reading. We are a silent reading culture, but the ancient cultures were oral because a lot of people were what? They were illiterate, so they couldn't actually read for themselves. We're, we're a little bit more literate culture, but that's actually changing. Come on in, guys. Okay, they were dictated to, I'm going to teach you guys a word, okay? Here's your $10 million word for the night. An amanuensis. Can you say amanuensis? Or if you want, can you, yeah, I'm glad you said it after me. Or you can also just say that it was a, um, a, like a dictating person. Not a dictator, but like dictation. So like Paul, for example, at the end of Romans 16.22, let's just turn there real quick. Some of these letters, Paul, Paul, in like one letter, Paul says, I'm writing this with my very own hands. But in 16.22, it says, Romans 16.22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Well, I thought Paul wrote the letter. Paul dictated the letter to Tertius to write it down. Okay, so some letters were written to by an amanuensis. That's just the official word for like a secretary. Like in the old days where you'd like dictate to your secretary and she'd type it on shorthand, you know. That's what Paul would do in some of his letters, okay? Just remember this, though. The words were still the Holy Spirit's and Paul and his amanuensis were under divine influence. Just because Paul may have not physically put pen to paper doesn't mean that it wasn't inspired or wasn't Paul's words through the Holy Spirit working in his life. Um, I think we've established that fact a lot over the past few weeks about inspiration and authority. Um, Paul's letters had several purposes. First and foremost, they were pastoral. What do I mean by pastoral? Paul planted most of these churches, and he was the founding pastor, or he had been very instrumental in shepherding these peoples. You know, Thessalonican, the Thessalonian church is interesting because Paul was only there three weeks, and he had to hightail it out of there. So he's writing it back. So he's writing as a pastor back to these churches, giving them pastoral care, pastoral counsel. He's being their pastor. Also catechetical. Can you guys say it? I'm giving you some other $10 million words tonight. Training and doctrine. Catechetical means catechism or catechesis. It's just Latin for training in doctrine, giving teaching, giving instruction, training in theology, doctrine. A lot of Old Testament instruction. Paul will interpret the Old Testament for us in a lot of places and give us the full meaning of what happened back then. So Paul quotes a lot from the Old Testament, which you'd expect, because what was Paul? He was a Pharisee, and so he knew the Old Testament front and back. Do you have any extra sheets? Uh, are there extra sheets flying around? I'm sorry, are there extra sheets? Um, we have a full house tonight. I think Tarina only probably made... Do you want to go make some more? Yeah, you can take... Yes, there's extra sheets. Does anybody else need extra sheets? Does anybody else need an extra sheet? Okay. Who is? Oh, Russell. Okay. Okay. All right. So, Old Testament instruction. All right. Um, I'm going to teach you guys another word, too. Polemical. I'm teaching you a lot of big words tonight, okay? Polemical. Um, polemical, when you, when you do something with polemics or polemical, you're often exposing or unmasking a false teaching. So, for example, um, I don't do this often, but sometimes on Sunday mornings when I preach, I may turn into a little bit of a polemical mode. Um, last week was, or last two weeks was very polemical, because what were we doing? 
we were talking about churches that were abandoning the gospel and we were kind of, we weren't naming names. Sometimes Paul names names, but we're, we're addressing heresies, we're addressing error. We're, it's just being, it's called being polemical. You were trying to address heresies that were creeping into these churches. And then um, to explain the nature of the Christian life, Paul explains the gospels tell the life of Jesus the book of Acts tells the history of the other church. Paul fills in the gaps and tells us how do we live the Christian life. Okay? So I wanted to show you the form of Paul's letters. And, and what I want us to do is, is I want us to go to Ephesians. We're not going to look at the book of Ephesians tonight. We're going to get to Ephesians, but I want to show you the big picture because Ephesians is a good template for how Paul writes his letters. Almost all of his letters follow a certain style. And this style of writing was, was, was um, basically very popular in that ancient culture. So letter writing, how do we normally start our letters? Dear John. And how do we end our letters? Signed, love, always, XO, I don't know, whatever. You sign your name at the end. Okay. In that ancient culture, he signed his name at the beginning. So you put your, you put your dear so-and-so and you sign your name at the beginning. So you start with the opening. Okay, so let's look at Ephesians 1. And you can look at almost, you could pretty much pick any of Paul's letters, and there's going to be an opening. It's usually the first or second verses of the first chapter. He identifies himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Two, here's the audience, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Almost every one of his letters is going to have Paul, or, Ty, or Timothy, but he's going to say, I'm Paul, I'm writing this, I'm writing this to the church, grace and peace to you. So that's the introduction in almost all of his letters. That was a literary convention that was used in ancient Greece. Then there's usually a thanksgiving or a blessing. Paul, like in Philippians, will say, I thank my God and Father, and he gives the reason why he's thankful. Okay? In Ephesians, he starts with a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in every spiritual, with every spiritual blessing. So he starts out not telling the church what to do, not giving them instruction, but giving either thanksgiving or giving some type of blessing. Now, here's where I want us to understand the most important part. You've got gospel indicatives and you've got moral imperatives. Now, somebody tell me, what are the gospel indicatives and what are the moral imperatives? I think we've talked about this before. Didn't we talk about this a few weeks ago? What is an indicative? Does anybody remember what an indicative is? It's actually, an, it's actually a mood in the Greek language, the indicative mood. That's why we call it an indicative. It's a statement of fact. It's a state of being. It's not a command. It's just a statement of fact. And so Paul is going to start his letters with these gospel indicatives, these statements of fact, often talking about who God is and who we are. John Calvin, in the beginning of the Institutes of Christian Religion, said the two most important things any Christian can ask is, number one, who is God? And number two, who are we? Who is God and who are we? That's fundamental. And Paul often starts with that. Then, about halfway through his book, he switches gears and goes into the moral imperatives. Imperative mood in the Greek language is the mood of command. 
where he starts giving instructions, he starts giving commands, he starts giving, like I said up there, some ethical teachings, some moral act maxims, some list of virtues, things that we're supposed to do. So, for example, let's just look at Ephesians. Chapter 1. All the gospel indicatives that you can think of are in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been chosen. We've been adopted. We've been um, redeemed. We've been lavished with grace. We've obtained an inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit. We have been made alive in Christ. We have been raised to new life. We've been brought into the church as one body, that we have peace with Christ. That's all in chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 3, it talks about how we are the church and how God has made known the mystery of the gospel to us and how um, we have been filled with love and how God has strengthened us and how God is able to do all these things. And so Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 are all gospel indicatives. They're things about what God has done or who God is and what we are and what God has done for us. We're not asked to do anything in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Now look at chapter 4. How does chapter 4 start? What word is used? What's the, what's the tip-off word to know that we're switching from indicative to imperative? There's a clear word that tips you off. What's the word? Therefore. And you've got to figure out what the therefore is there for. Therefore, it's the hinge. So what Paul does is he says, okay, here's who you are in Christ. Here's what God has done for you. Here's grace. Here's the gospel indicatives. Therefore, in light of this, now I'm going to command you in how to live. Now let's look at chapter 4 just briefly. He says, I urge you, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. First command. Up to this point, we haven't been told to do anything. So Paul says, therefore, in light of who you are in the gospel, now, therefore, walk in a manner worthy. And so all through chapter 4, he's going to give teaching after teaching on spiritual gifts and on how to get along as a church and on how to not be um, impure and how to have no corrupting talk come out of your mouths and how to, how to get along as a, as a church. And then in chapter 5, he talks about um, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he starts talking about um, husbands and wives and how they relate to one another and parents and children and slaves and masters. Then he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And then he has, usually at the end of the letter, he's got um, a closing where he's got a final greeting where he usually mentions people's names and then he says, peace to you and grace to you. Okay, so let's just stop right there. And we've talked about this many times, but I think it's very, very important. You tell me, let's have a little discussion here. What would happen, or or let let me ask it this way and then I'll ask the second question. First question. When you listen to Christian radio or you watch Christian TV, don't critique me, okay? So I'm not, I'm not asking you to critique me because you listen to me all the time. But other people you listen to out there, which type of preaching do you hear more of? Do you hear more imperatives or indicatives out in the evangelical world? Imperatives. Okay. So if you just listen to the radio or you listen to Christian broadcasting or watch Christian TV, what is it often, what's often there? Things that you must do. Is there anything wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that because Paul has four chapters or three chapters related to things we're supposed to do. So would you say there's more of a weight to the imperatives being preached than the indicatives? Just in general. Okay, yes. What happens then if all Christians or even non-Christians get is imperatives and they don't get the indicatives, what ends up happening? 
legalism, workspace. Here's two things that happen. If you're, not, if you're a Christian and you hear all I've, if you hear the imperatives, you're thinking one of two things. If you're very motivated, you're thinking, okay, here's my list of things to do, and I can do those things in my own power. Just give me the list. And you become very prideful. You become very legalistic. You begin to compare yourself to others, and you are so caught up in the list in the doing. The other extreme, that's what I call inflated pride. Okay, what does it mean to be inflated? Puffed up. I can do it. The other type of Christian looks at the things that they're supposed to do and they say to themselves, I can't even begin to do this. This is way too much. This is out of my, I mean, this is out of my comfort zone. I can't do it. So you end up deflated, despair, or guilt. What does it mean to be deflated? So either way, when you divorce indicatives from imperatives, you're setting Christians up for failure. Because what you're doing is you're trying to tell them to live the Christian life without their what? We've talked about it for the past 50 days. Identity, who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ and what God has done for us in Christ, the gospel indicatives, fuel the moral imperatives and give us the power and the desire to do them. And if you don't have a good balance of these then you're setting Christians up for failures to live the Christian life in their own power, and it's either going to lead to legalism or it's going to lead to guilt. And if all you do is teach the gospel indicatives, then there's no obedience. Yes, Brent? I think it's also like, um, I think the sour review... I'm coming close. Is that, oh, just so you're going to pick up on that. I hate the sour review where you go in and they say, man, you really stink at this, you're horrible at this, I can't believe how bad you are at this. Well, you do have some good points. Versus saying, you know what, you are great at this. You are wonderful working with people. You really work well at this, but you have a few things you have to work on. And so it's kind of the positive, and then you have some negatives right. versus the opposite. And I think that's sort mm-hmm. of what I see even just yeah. in the teaching. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you two things. Okay, as a lost person, not a Christian, but as a lost person, do you have the ability to obey? Okay, no. Why? You're spiritually dead. You're lost. You have no Holy Spirit. You can't do it. Now, you can be maybe moral. You can maybe try real hard for a season. But can you truly obey God? No. Do you as a lost person have the desire to do it? You don't have the desire nor the ability to want to obey and please God as a lost person. So, when you get saved, when God gives you the gift of faith, when He regenerates you, when you have the Holy Spirit, when you're born again, whatever word we want to use, what does God give you in His grace? The two things that you didn't have before. What do you have now? You have ability and you have desire. Meaning, I can obey Jesus because I have the Holy Spirit that gives me the ability. And now I want to obey Jesus because I have the Holy Spirit and the ability. Does that make sense? And if you don't have the gospel indicatives, you miss this because you're just telling people, go do it without any power or without any passion for Christ. That, does that make sense how Paul does that? So you can go to almost any one of his letters, and as we go through his letters, I want you to pay attention to the gospel indicatives and the moral imperatives. And if you get those, if you start preaching moral imperatives all the time, 
All right, let me, let me, let me, let me give you another category here. Well maybe, well, maybe we'll wait on that. I'll give you an example. Um, I was talking, or maybe I was listening to a sermon by R. Deserti, or maybe it was one time when we, were, when we were together, and he was telling me that he really hammers this, and that in his seminary class with his preaching students, he had them listen to a um, radio program and ask them, what do you think of this radio preacher? And they're all like, it's, he's pretty good. It's pretty solid. What he's saying is, is, is pretty good. I mean, I don't see anything heretical or wrong. Um, you know, it's, it's good Christian morals. It's, it's good living. And he said, okay, what if I told you that he was one of the lead, major leaders of, of a worldwide cult? And they're like, really? This guy was preaching biblical morality, but he wasn't talking about how we can do it in the gospel of Christ. There's a lot of biblical morality preaching out there, but not gospel. What's the difference between moral preaching and gospel preaching? You guys tell me. One uses the Bible. One uses the Bible? <laughs> okay. Okay, it points back to the cross. If all I did when I stood up, if I stood up every Sunday and said, you guys be the best that you can be, how are you going to feel when you walk out? You may be pumped up for a minute, but the moment that you walk out there, you're going to be like, I know what's in me, and I'm not going to be the best I can be, and you're, you're setting me up for failure, Sean. You're going to say what? Or would you rather have this being told to you week after week? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm a new creation in Christ. I look to the cross, and even when I fail, I know there's forgiveness at the cross. I've got the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't, um, he will never leave or forsake me. He, I've got it, he, I'm in the grip of God's hand. And so there I go out and I worship and I live for Jesus out of his love for me and my desire to want to worship him back. That's going to motivate you more than just me giving you a bunch of lists. Moral preaching is probably not around very much anymore, but some of you may have grown up with it. How many of you grew up with moral preaching? It's the, the sin of the week. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, don't dance, don't play cards, don't go watch movies. It all deals with what? Externals. Because externals are easier to control, can't they? Don't go see rated R movies unless they involve the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay? <laughs> don't listen to rock music or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, you can deal with externals, but what's the issue? What's the real issue? Our heart. Yeah. You're trying, to, you're trying to get behavior before. I had a lady come into my office today um, who's struggling with, the, with, with raising a, a grandchild and, and, and stuff. And so um, she said, how can I pray for my grandson? And I said, oftentimes with children, what we pray for is we pray for them to have good behavior, which is not bad. But what we should be praying for is God to change their heart. Because heart will affect behavior. And she's like, that was like a light bulb. She's like, I had never thought about that. I've been praying for him to be a good kid. I'm like, yeah, you can pray for that. But until God changes his heart, he's not going to have the behavior. That's what gospel preaching does. It gets to the heart. Moral imperative preaching without gospel indicative preaching goes for behavior, but not the heart. Okay? I'm not going to harp on that any longer. You guys got that? All right, let's talk about classifications. How did the letters get arranged as we have them now? Anybody know why Romans is first and Philemon is last? Count up your chapters, the longest book to the smallest book. Romans has 16 chapters. Philemon is like that big on the sheet of paper. They're arranged by size, length, 
longest to shortest. Okay? Let's do Romans. Let's do Romans. And I'm not sure how many, <laughs> how many weeks you're going to be in Romans, Sean. Well, as long as it takes us. I won't be like, you know, John Piper, I think, spent nine years in Romans. So did Martin Lloyd Jones. I think he preached like a chap, like I think he preached a verse every week. I'm not going to do that. This is a flyby. This is an overview, okay? So let me give you the big picture of Romans. Let's just talk about the city of Rome. Um, In the city of Rome, there were well over one million people. Some scholars believe at the time Paul was writing, there could have been as many as four million people, which is the size of Denver. Isn't Denver like four million people? Four or five million people, I think. So Rome is a huge city. The majority of these people in Rome were slaves. Now, when we think of slavery, we need to think differently than American slavery. Almost all of the population in ancient Roman culture, unless you were like a senator or a rich person, you were a slave. That just basically meant you were a household worker. You may have worked in the field. You may work in the house. It basically didn't mean that you were in chains and had to do manual labor. It just meant that you did not own yourself. Somebody else owned you. You could still go home to your family, but you had to show up to work, and you had no rights. You were a, you were a slave. So the majority of that town was, was slaves. The diversity of the people allowed for diversity of religious beliefs as well. So you've got all this. Um, you've got Egyptian paganism. You've got Greek mythology, you've got Roman mythology, you've got Jewish mythology, all coming together in Rome to have this just cauldron of of weird, wacky religions. Now, how was the church founded in Rome? Question, did Paul start the church in Rome? No, Paul did not start the church in Rome. Paul is writing to a church that he's never met. So we have to ask the question, how did this church get started? So there's some guesses out there of how this church got started. Let's look at the first guess. In in AD 49, Claudius the emperor, it's called the Edict of Claudius, he expelled all the Jews from Rome for fighting over a guy named Crestus or Christ. So anti-Semitism in Rome in AD 49, we're getting rid of all the Jews. So all the Jews had to leave Rome. And a lot of these being Christian Jews. So if you were Jewish by ethnicity and you were a Christian, you had to leave Rome. Okay, so where are these people going to go? If you are a slave or you um, have to earn a living, where are you probably going to go if you can't be in Rome? And all you know are big cities where there's more jobs. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to Corinth, you're going to go to Athens, you're going to go to Philippi. You're going to, try to, you're going to spread out over the Roman Empire to these major cities. And guess what's going to happen? As you're outside of Rome and you're in these new cities, this guy Paul is going to come into town. And you're going to hear the gospel and you're going to start being part of the church in Corinth or maybe the church in Philippi or maybe the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul spent a great deal of time in big cities like Corinth and Ephesus. And so what ended up happening was... We'll find out in just a moment, Claudius allowed the Jews to go back to Rome. So the belief is maybe these Jews got saved in Ephesus or Corinth under Paul's ministry, and then they went back to Rome with the things they learned from those churches, and they started planting churches in Rome without Paul. 
Okay. Another possibility is back in Pentecost, Acts 2.10 implies that new Christians went back to Rome after the day of Pentecost. There were, there, were, there were people from Rome. The day of Pentecost, they go back to Rome. They've been saved. They may have just started churches then without any pastoral mentoring or without Paul. Just, hey, we believe in Jesus. Let's start this thing. So either way you look at it, Paul was not the one that started it. Authorship. There's widespread support for Pauline authorship. It was probably written in 56 toward the end of his journey and during the three months he spent in Corinth. So we have to ask the question, why is Paul writing his most famous book to a people he's never met, but he wants to get to them? Remember our study in Acts? What did, what did Jesus say to Paul? Do you remember? You must go to Rome. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. You must go to Rome. And so God orchestrated events where he went before those three governors and then finally the shipwreck, and he finally got to Rome, the city. that And Paul wanted to go to Rome. But Paul's not there yet, so he longs to go there. And so why is he, is he, is he doing this? The readers of the church, who composed the Roman church, although a substantial number of Jews were there, it was a Gentile majority and a strongest Jewish minority. Okay, so let's talk about this. Edict of Claudius. A.D. 54. Let's, let's just go with the theory that there was already a church there from Pentecost. It was a church that was a mixture of Gentiles and Jews. And then in A.D. 54, what happens to part of your church? It would be like a fourth of our church. It would be like the mayor of Sterling says, okay, um, all blonde-haired, blue-eyed people at Emmanuel, you need to leave and go to another city. So like part, half of our church or part of our church... I mean, our church family's broken up, and they're gone. Okay, so Gentiles are left. And Gentiles do things different than Jews, don't they? They eat things differently. They don't do the same dietary rules. Okay, later on, I think it's in AD 59, don't quote me on that, Claudius allows the Jews to come back. So for four or five years here, you as a church have operated as a Gentile majority, and now the Jews are coming back. And do you think that's going to cause some issues? Think it's going to cause some friction? Well, why are you guys doing it this way? Well, why are you guys doing it this way? Remember doctrine of dogma and preferences? The Jews have their preferences. The Gentiles have their preferences. They come into sharp conflict. And so this church that Paul's writing to is probably a bunch of house churches because in Rome, they probably couldn't meet in some big amphitheater. They probably had pockets all throughout the neighborhoods, maybe 20, 30 people together, and then they, they, they may have all come together comprised of Jews and Gentiles. So why is Paul writing to them? Why did Paul write to a church he didn't know personally? One theory, it's a missionary manifesto. If you go to the end of the book of Romans, what does Paul want to do? Paul says, I want to go to Spain. Because Spain is an unreached people group. It's the final frontier. Nobody's preached Christ in Spain. And so let me do my best to draw a map of Europe here, okay? We all know what Italy looks like, right? The boot hill, okay? Here's France. And then what do we have over here? Like Spain? Spain? Is that like Spain and Portugal? Okay. So here's Spain. And here's, here's Rome. 
And where's Paul? Paul's in Corinth over here. So Paul, really, his ultimate destination is not just to go to Rome. Yes, he wants to go to Rome, but his ultimate destination is to go to Spain. Why does he want to go to Spain? He tells us at the end of Romans that he wants to go where Christ has not been preached. This is what we would consider an unreached people group, like the Bogotas of India, a people group that's never heard the gospel. And so Paul is writing a missionary letter to Rome saying, Hey, guys, when I'm on my way to Spain, which is where I really want to get, I want to stop off and get to know you guys, and I really want to get encouragement because I want to take a mission trip to Spain, and I want to stop there and spend some time with you. So really, he's giving them the missionary letter, really saying, Can you support me? When I show up, would you support me as a missionary as I go to Spain? That's what some people believe the book of Romans is about. It's a missionary letter to the church to, to, to help support Paul on his way to Spain. Second issue, it's, some people say it's a doctrinal treatise. This is Paul's magnum opus, if you will. This is Paul's laying out of his theology. This is Paul's grand book where he's going to lay out the themes of, of his greatest theology. Okay? Some people say, well, it's an immediate need. What was the immediate need? Jews and Gentiles aren't getting along. And so Paul needs to write to square them away or to, to get them squared, squared away. Uh, you see that in chapters 13, 14, and 15. So which is it? My argument, it's all three. It's a combination of all three with a weight, I would say, to number two. You see all three of those there, but I would say it's a weight to number two. Now, what are the characteristics of the book of Romans? It reads like an elaborate theological essay. It is like a legal brief. Because Paul sets forth these arguments. And like a good attorney, he's going to set forth an argument and he's going to expect an objection from the bench. I object, or from the other attorney. So he's going to lay forth an assertion. He's going to think in his mind there's going to be an objection. He's going to erase the objection. He's going to answer the objection. He's going to keep going through and, and laying down this logical, legal, um, theological essay widespread use of the Old Testament, probably more Old Testament in Romans than, than in any other book, a lot of quotations from the Old Testament. All right, let's go to Romans chapter 1. I believe Romans chapter 1 contains the thesis of the book of Romans. Now, one of the things that we've got to ask about these letters, okay? So every letter that we look at, We've got to ask the big question. What's the thesis? If you don't like the word thesis, maybe the, what's the big idea? What's the main point? Now, obviously, since these are long letters, they're going to have many points, but all of these letters hinge on a major thesis. And normally you can find out where that thesis is, usually towards the beginning of Paul's letter. I This is my personal interpretation, but I believe the thesis or the main point of Paul's letter is in Romans 1.16. So let's read that and see if you would agree with me. You don't have to, but I, I think this, this is my interpretation of what the thesis of the point of Romans is. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's argument is, what I'm going to share with you for over the next 16 chapters is the gospel and how it's the power for salvation. The power of the gospel. 
First to the Jew, because he's going to address Jews in here, and then to the Gentiles, because there's a mixed audience in his, in his church. Okay? What's the main point of chapter 1? Each chapter has a main point. Here's the main point of chapter 1. I'll tell you the main points of chapters 1, 2, and 3. You ready? Chapter 1, you're all under God's wrath. Chapter 2, Jews, you're under God's wrath. Jews, just if you, if you think that you, if you think that, um, let me, let me restate that. Number one, Gentiles are under God's wrath. Number two, Jews are under God's wrath. In case you didn't get the picture, chapter three, we're all under God's wrath. And then he switches to this but, he uses this but statement. Um, and so he establishes basically a doctrine of, I hate to say it, a doctrine of depravity and wrath from the very outset. Now, you might ask the question, why in the world would you start talking about depravity and wrath? That's not a very seeker-sensitive place to start. You don't win friends and influence people by talking about sin, do you? Why do you think if the gospel, if the thesis is the gospel is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. Can the gospel be good news without bad news? Why, do we, why does Paul spend three chapters talking about bad news before he gets to the good news? So the good news is really good news. Okay? So let's look here and talk about a topic that we may not want to talk about. I'm going to, have to open a bunch of, bunch of can of worms tonight, but I'm not opening these can of worms. Paul is. So you can thank Paul when we get to heaven for opening these cans of worms about these issues because I'm going to bring up a bunch of stuff that, that you may disagree with me on, and that's okay, but um, I'm just going to give you my understanding of what I think Romans is teaching. Okay, Let's just look at verse 1 and see his introduction. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's a powerful introduction where he basically says, I am an apostle to come to you and talk to you about Jesus and he gives a lot of definitions of Jesus. He was prophesied in the Holy Scriptures. He's the son of David. He came in the flesh. He was declared to be the son of God. He came by the Holy Spirit. He rose from the dead. And then he says something very interesting there in verse 5. He says, Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of his name among who? All the nations. Let's keep that in mind that Paul starts his letter talking about the nations. And we've talked about this. What's the Greek word for nations? Ethne. We get our word ethnicity, ethnic. When we think about nations today, we think about the United Nations where we think about geopolitical nation states like France or Germany or Japan or Russia or India. When the Bible speaks of nations, it speaks of ethno-linguistic people groups who share a common language, a common culture, a common um, affinity. And so from the very beginning, Paul, do you hear the missionary language here from the very beginning? 
I want this gospel of Jesus Christ to go to all the nations. And later on, we'll find out, especially to the nations that have never heard, the unreached people groups, Spain in Paul's case, the the over 6,000 unreached people groups that we have in our world right now. Okay, now let's go down to verse 16. We saw that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse 17. For in it, what is the it? The gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What we find in the gospel is the righteousness of God. That's a huge question. Here's the question that everybody should be waking up with every morning, but they don't. People who are lost should be waking up every morning saying, why am I still here and not in hell? Because if God were just, I would get what I deserve. Do people think that? No, they don't. So the the question of Romans is, how can a righteous God accept unrighteous sinners and not compromise his righteousness? Because God just can't forgive, can he? I'll leave that hanging out there. God's got to protect his righteousness. At the same time, he's got to make the unrighteous righteous without sacrificing his righteousness. Does that make sense? That's a big question in Romans. We'll get back to that when we get to chapter 4 and 3. All right, let's look at chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, for the what? The wrath of God. 714. Okay, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath has been revealed, will be revealed. What tense of the verb does it say there? Is being revealed. So is God's wrath real right now? Okay, so let's just stop. This text tells us that God's wrath is being revealed right now. Let's define wrath because before we go any further, we need to have a clear understanding of wrath because if we're going to use that word, we need to all understand clearly what we mean. Does wrath mean that God had a bad hair day and he just woke up on the wrong side of bed and he just flew off the handle because he's upset? Does it mean that God's like a little toddler in the corner that's crying because you took away his crayons? Is God like Zeus who's some human-type deity throwing lightning bolts from heaven down on people because he's mad at them? Then what is wrath? Wrath is God's righteous anger against sin. It's part of his nature. It's part of God's very nature. As a holy, righteous, powerful God, he must punish sin. Would you agree? If he didn't punish sin, would God be holy? Would God be righteous? So when we talk about wrath, it's not that God's out of control. God's very much in control, but it is an anger or a judgment that he has to express towards sin. And Paul's very specific about what type of sin it is. Now let's look down at verse 19. Because I've asked this question in this class before and in other classes, and I want to see what answer I get this time. 
Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Is there such a thing as an atheist? I'm just throwing that out there. A person may claim to be an atheist, which means, what's an atheist? An atheos, okay? Theist means a person that believes in God. Ah, before it means there is no God. Can a person in their heart of hearts truly say there is no God according to this verse? What does this verse say? God has made his divine nature plain to everybody on creation. All you got to do is look up at the sky and see the moon, see the stars, see Pikes Peak, see the ocean, see the Grand Canyon, and you know that that had to get there and it wasn't me that put it there. It's something bigger than myself. I may not know that it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but I know that there's a higher power out there that did it. So everybody in their heart of hearts knows that there is a God. But verse 18 tells us what people do. What is the key word there? They suppress that knowledge. What does it mean to suppress? They push it down. They hold it down. They don't want to face it. Those of us that went to the Truth Project about three or four years ago, and I think like you guys, like Dave and Julie, you guys were in there. I'm trying to think who else was you guys. We looked at all these scientists that had all this information about an intelligent design, and, and, and they would agree with the scientific data. And they would be faced with it, and they would be saying, and they would say, we cannot explain this other than a divine creator, but yet they would not bring themselves to do that because they couldn't bring themselves to believe that there was a God. That's, that's where a person actually suppresses the truth. It's right in their face, but they don't want to admit it. Yes? I saw a great example of that on Facebook today where people and one guy said, I'm just going to trust the universe. To do what? <laughs> to fold in on a... <laughs> She's going to trust the universe to. Well, let's let's just stop. Let's stop right there. Okay, it's good to go on tangents. There's a lot of people out there that inherently has God created us to worship, yes. most definitely, and we'll find it. Let's just help me keep that train of thought. Okay, I'm going to write this up here. Worship. Universe. Void. Just help me remember that, okay? It's in my mind, but it'll come out in just a minute. Let's keep going. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not what? Honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and circle this word, key word there, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they, there it is, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Back to the question. Has God created us to be worshipers? Yes. Most definitely. What have people done instead of worshiping God? They've made a devilish exchange. What have they done? They've traded in the glory of God to worship created things. Whether that's the universe, 
as Paul says here, birds, animals, or reptiles. I think in our case, in our day, what do people worship? Themselves and an extension of themselves, the things they like, whether that's sports or money or any created thing. Now, what does the second commandment, what does the first commandment tell us? You shall have no other gods before me. So there's no other gods above God. There's no other God besides God. God is the one true God. Okay, we've got that established, right? What's the second commandment? And you may think, well, how can that be broken today? You shall not make for yourself a, a graven image or an idol carved out of your own hands. Now, when we go to India, you see that. Idols carved with their own hands. In America, most people aren't going to be carving idols in their backyards and putting up totem poles. Maybe. Here's how it plays out in America. Here's how the second commandment's broken. When you hear people say, to me, God is dot, 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 and they fill in the blank with whatever they want God to be. They are creating in their mind an image of God that's not the God of the Bible. So they're breaking the second commandment by creating something that they they were meant to worship God, but they've suppressed the truth, they've exchanged the glory of God, and they've taken a cheap substitute by worshiping and giving themselves to an idol. Idols are, if you go back to Isaiah, what did Isaiah say about idols? These are dumb, dead idols that don't speak. The same idol you use to worship, I, you, you, the, same, the same piece of wood that you cut down to use for an idol, the other piece of wood you use to burn into the fire. What kind of idol is that? And so here we have this whole issue of the, the, big, the great exchange, if you will, that humans have done is they've, they've exchanged the glory and the splendor and the majesty of God to worship created things. And Paul goes on to explain how this is most clearly expressed in an inversion of sexual relationships. Okay? Talking about the homosexual nature of, 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 of having homosexual relationships, men and women. Now, I want to go back to something. And when I, some of you read what I wrote today on Facebook, and it was kind of weird. I woke up this morning, and in the shower, it kind of came to me, and I got out of the shower, and I write this as fast as I can. And so half of it I wrote at home, and I got to church and wrote that second half. And um, I was thinking about the passive wrath of God. So some of you may not have read what I, what I wrote. Some of you may have written it. But I want to talk about the active and the passive wrath of God. Because we often don't, we often don't really quite have these categories in our minds as Christians. Let's first of all talk about the active wrath because that may be easier to see. When we talk about the active wrath of God, an example of that would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? God rained down fire in judgment and poured out his wrath in a very dramatic way. Okay? Another act of, of God's active wrath would be when Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, offered unauthorized fire on the altar and they were consumed with fire right then on the spot. God's active wrath. Or when the earth swallowed up and they were taken into the earth, the sons of Korah. Or when Uzzah was walking with the Ark of the Covenant and he touched it and he was struck dead right then and there. Or when God would bring wrath upon pagan nations by bringing in a locust plague or, or like the Passover, that was a wrath or the angel of death. So those are the big active wraths where we could see, okay, that's a big visible sign where we can see God's judgment poured out. Think about Jonah. Remember Jonah? 
Let's just take a little diversion with Jonah. God said, Jonah, Jonah, oh, oh, go to Nineveh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he didn't go, did he? He didn't go to Nineveh. <clears throat> he went the other way. So he had to be swallowed by a fish to, for God to get his attention. He goes, okay, God, you got my attention. He goes into Nineveh. He preaches an eight-word sermon. You know what the sermon was? Repent for 40 more days, you're toast. That's all he had to say. In 40 days, you're going to be toast. And what's he expecting? He's expecting active wrath. I can't wait for God to do Sodom and Gomorrah part two. I just can't wait for this. So he goes over on the side of the hill, and after he's preached his sermon, he's looking for the fire from heaven. What happens? The people repent. The people are broken. The people are repentant. Even the king gets in ashes, and he calls for a national fast. And so God relents from bringing disaster because they repented and believed in the living God. And so you have Jonah over there being like, wait a minute, God. That's not the way you work. You're supposed to pour out your active wrath upon these people. And God says, Jonah, they repented. And then God does an object lesson for Jonah. Remember the object lesson? Jonah's over there, and it's really hot. So he's complaining, I'm hot, God. So God provides a plant. And Jonah loves that plant. And Jonah really, really loves that plant. And Jonah shows great attention to that plant. And he loves and he adores and he, he hugs and kisses that plant. I'm kind of exaggerating here. And then God takes the plant away. And what does Jonah do? He has a coronary because the plant's taken away. And God looks at him and says, Jonah, you have more concern for a plant than people who repent. I have the right to bring judgment and I have the right to refrain from judgment when I see repentance. And so Jonah was waiting for that. And sometimes as Christians, we, we wait to see that act of wrath. You know, there's that abortion clinic. We want to see an earthquake, knock them out. Or we see that, you know, such, such and such, whatever group we don't like, we want to see lightning bolts from, I'm not saying, hopefully we don't think that, but I mean, sometimes Christians, we want to see the active wrath of God, fire and brimstone and all the stuff that we'll probably see in Revelation. That'll be God's active wrath, okay? But there's such a thing as passive wrath. This is sometimes scarier because it's hard to see. But notice that phrase in verse 24. God gave them up. Meaning, let me paraphrase God here. I know it's dangerous, but let me just kind of paraphrase what passive wrath is. You want to have abortion on demand? You want to have gay marriage? You want to have all this immorality in your country? Go for it. I'm hands off. And when God says, I'm hands off, that's very scary because when God goes hands off, what does that mean? Evil goes to its natural course, and you see the devastating effects of evil without any intervention from God. So in a way, it could actually be scarier than this type of stuff because you're allowing people to go the course of their own heart, wherever it would take them. Only he'll take him to judges, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. Now, I made an argument in my, in my, in my whatever article or post today that I think that maybe God is unleashing his passive wrath on America by saying, you, that's what you want, America? Go for it. Now, here's the tension. As Christians that live in God's passive wrath, how do we relate to that? Are we under God's wrath? No, we're not under God's wrath, but we may live in a nation that's under God's wrath. 
And so how we relate to the world really shows how we're going to react. Um, now, we will, we will definitely be affected by it. Um, so what we should be praying for then is, God, would you visit us in mercy and restrain that passive wrath and bring revival to our land? Because let's just look in Romans chapter 2 for a moment. We'll get there. I don't know if we'll get there tonight. We may not get through Rome. Um, Rome and I put this in, in, that, in, that, in that thing too. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance? What's forbearance? Patience. And patience. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? When God shows grace... When God shows kindness, when God doesn't pour out His active wrath or maybe even His, His passive wrath, isn't an excuse for you to continue doing what you're doing. It's meant to lead you to repentance. One of the things that is beautiful about the gospel is that almost, there's a few exceptions, but the only, even, in, even in Noah and the flood, God always, I think, offers an opportunity for repentance. There's very few times in the Bible where you see just immediate judgment. How many years did Noah preach? Like over 100 years, wasn't it? And, and he's up there preaching while he's building this boat, and he's walking by, and people are like, I've never seen this thing called rain. Well, it's coming. God's judgment's coming. Believe the living God. God always offers repentance. But, and this, I have to say this very carefully because I don't know when that happens, I think there's a limit to God's timetable. God's kindness may run out, and He may at times, and I don't know, He's sovereign over this, He may at times say, enough's enough, this is where my, my wrath, where, where, my, where my grace comes to an end. And that's kind of scary. I, I can't play God. I don't know when that happens, and I don't know how that happens, but I think you see some biblical examples of God giving people opportunities to repent, but when they don't, I mean, we see it in Jonah. He gave them an opportunity to repent, and they repented, and God relented. And Noah, they did not. And only Noah and his family was saved. He, Cain. he even did it with Cain. Well, Ananias and Sapphira was one of those examples where there was no opportunity. Yeah, there was no opportunity. Well, P- yeah, Ananias, he did. Yeah, he gave, he gave his wife an opportunity. To, yeah, yeah. So anyway, when we think about the wrath of God, and one thing I want us to also think about too is sometimes we can pick, oh, let me, let me go to another, so let me think about this. Before we get, to, we may get to the issue of, of homosexuality, but before we get there, I want to ask another question. This is not, this is not um, a question. Those of you that went through Radical, you'll know where this is coming from with David Platt. This comes from David Platt. What happens to the innocent person in Africa or Asia or South America or whatever that's never heard the gospel? Will that person go to heaven or hell? The innocent person that goes. Okay, good, you got it. I was at the Southern Baptist Convention when David Platt preached that message, and I had a couple next to me. I didn't know who they were, but he's, he asked that question. He goes, I can tell you on the authority of God's word, those people would go to heaven. And they're like, oh, they're about ready to have a coronary. And, and I'd already heard this message or read Radical, and I said, wait for it. Wait for it. And he said, there are no innocent people. And they're like, oh, thank you. And like, they're like, they're about ready to call him out as a heretic. The problem is there is no innocent person. 
So if there was an innocent person that ever lived, of course they would go to heaven because they are innocent. But the Bible says what? There's verse chapter 3, there is no one righteous, no one seeks God, no one who does good. So the question here in Romans chapter 1, if a person dies without trusting consciously Christ for salvation, whether they've never heard the gospel or not, will they go to heaven or hell? I'm hearing mumbling. We don't want... We don't want to say it, do we? Biblically and theologically, they go to hell. Emotionally, it's hard for us to say that, right? Because what do we think? That's not fair. Why do we get a chance here in America to hear it multiple times when there's people that never had a chance to hear it? If we adopted that attitude, then the flip side to be, why do missions? Because all you're going to do when you get over there is you're going to mess things up. They're good right now because they've never heard. As soon as you go over there and tell them, now they're accountable. So the best thing for you to do for people who've never heard is never go tell them because they're okay. So let's just shut down missions right now and not go tell anybody because everybody's good. <laughs> yeah. And there's the next question. I knew that was coming. No, and that's, that's the follow-up question because that's the, there are two categories, okay? And I've had to struggle through this because of our son. One are adults who are accountable because the Bible says what? What does it say right there? Just read the text. The, the end of verse 20. They are without excuse okay they're without excuse so adults who die without ever hearing or trusting christ they're accountable without excuse that's category number one category number two you have babies you have um, aborted babies you have stillborn babies You have miscarriage babies, however, I mean, any baby in the womb that, however it, and then you have what we'd call mentally incapable, okay, people like Zachary, those people who do not have the mental capacity to, to, to consciously make a decision for Christ, okay? Now, the question you asked is, is there an age of accountability? That question is, is kind of a difficult question because we often want to know what the actual age is. And I can't tell you that there, the Bible never says there's an age. It's not like 8, 4, 3, 12. The Bible gives very, let me just preface this by saying the Bible gives very limited information on this in the first place. Okay? Let me tell you what I believe and what the standard belief has been of evangelical Baptist, Reformed Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, basically among the evangelical camp i believe that all this category right here they go to heaven okay now at what age that is the bible doesn't tell us but we have some clues okay i believe that there is a judgment where you are judged in the body look at look at there romans chapter 2 Romans chapter 2, verse, um, well, look at 5. 
But because of your hard and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. So there will be a judgment based upon what you did. Paul says, I think in 1 Corinthians, the deeds, whether good or bad, done in the body. So you're based upon the sin that you committed in your body. Question, can these be held accountable for the sins they committed in their body if they've never been born? Can mentally incapable people be held accountable for sins in their body if they don't know what it is they're doing? So there's got to be what we would call an age of reason or an age where that person becomes, and whatever, it could be different for each child, but it's a, it's a point in time where that child becomes conscious of sin. They know right from wrong. If they were to stand before God at judgment, they would know why they're being judged, and they would have the mental capacity to know that they have offended God and done wrong. What if they don't Go ahead, Don. That's a different question. So they can't comprehend. They may not understand. They don't understand how it is that you would ever come to know Christ. They might know that they've done something right. wrong because we told them right. you've done this wrong. They have a con- they would not ever understand the gospel. A baby or a mentally. An adult? Okay, I mean, right, right. A mentally, yeah, like for a mentally incapable person, and let me, let me, let me finish my whole argument, and then, I'll, and then I'll answer the questions. The other evidence I have is this, okay? We have evidence in the scriptures of babies being regenerated before they are born. Jeremiah was called out in the womb. What about John the Baptist? He leapt with the Holy Spirit in the womb. So we have evidence that children can be regenerated in the womb. Now, when I say regenerated, I mean given saving faith. Now, here's where my belief that regeneration precedes faith is helpful. If regeneration comes before faith, then you can have babies and mentally incapable being saved and being regenerated. What's the one thing they haven't done, though? They just haven't expressed it in in, in a conscious choice. If you're regenerated, that means you've been gone from death to life on the basis of the blood of Christ. You just haven't articulated that verbally or with a decision. If regeneration comes after faith and you're regenerated after you exercise faith, there's no hope for my son because he cannot make the conscious choice to accept Christ and therefore he cannot be regenerated. Yes, Shauna. Um, I would say that there's no such thing as an innocent baby. I would say that there's an innocent... They're, they're, they're born with total depravity, and they're born with the sin of Adam, but in a sense, they're innocent in the sense that they haven't... They don't know right from wrong and can't be held accountable. So there's a difference between total depravity and accountability. Does that make sense? And another argument is that Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and Jesus welcomed the little children. So if you take... And then also, remember when David's son that he had with Bathsheba died, what did he say? I'll, I'll go to him and he'll come to me. He believed that that baby that died in childbirth was in heaven.
Okay, so that's about all the information that we have. Oftentimes in the Bible, when you look in the Old Testament, what does God say about people? Those that don't know their right hand from their left hand, i.e., children don't know right from wrong. And those that don't know right from wrong oftentimes aren't held accountable in, in Deuteronomy. Now, so here's the issue. Are, all, are these babies and mentally incapable people, are they born with original sin? Yes, they've inherited sin from Adam. In the sense, though, even though they've never done anything wrong, are they guilty and thus deserving of punishment? Yes. Okay, if not, then we have two categories of people. We have those that are born without original sin and those that are. The issue is, okay, they have original sin, they are guilty, but they haven't, and this is the terminology that the Baptist catechisms and the Westminster Confession, they haven't become, what the word is, they haven't become actual transgressors yet. Meaning that, yes, they've inherited the guilt from Adam, but they actually haven't committed sins to be held accountable for that. So whatever age that is, there comes a point in time where a child, and I don't know what the age is, I think it's different for each child, where they know right from wrong. But they don't necessarily have to know all the facts of the gospel. They may be a four-year-old that knows that stealing's wrong, that hitting my sister's wrong, that, that God doesn't want me to do this and I'm going to be punished for this. But they may not understand substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, faith, lordship, grace. But they can still be saved without knowing those things if they die. Does that, does that make sense before... truth the gospel right but they understand that hitting my sister is wrong or lying mm. my mom is wrong right is that the same thing are they still mentally incapable i guess is what i'm saying because <clears throat> would how you define mentally incapable i guess is the yes okay because what is the limit yeah and i, and I think that's and i think that's a hard that's a hard question to ask um they can never understand what you have just explained to them yeah yeah, I think like if you have a twenty-five year if you have a twenty-five year old adult that's mentally incapable and they don't they can't understand the basic facts of the gospel that Jesus that I'm that you they are on that side they they wouldn't understand that I'm a sinner that Jesus died on the cross for me that He rose again for me that I need to repent and believe and it's all a free gift of grace and I need to call upon Him as Lord if they can't understand yeah yeah right. They may understand Jesus loves me, and they may understand that he died, but that's, that's getting into kind of some... some not able to answer. Yeah, but I'm yeah it's a hard... The, the, the bottom line is this, guys. The bottom line is the Bible does not give a definitive answer. You have to make some inferences, and I think that throughout the history of the church, the inference has been all those that are babies, aborted babies, stillborn babies, miscarriages, and mentally incapable, based upon regeneration, based upon the blood of Christ, they go to heaven. Cindy. I was just going to say what, what you end up having to do what I end up having to do with some of these things um, is remember that in Job and everywhere else God never answers why questions he always answers in truth and if I truly if I when I read my Bible the God I see in the Bible is fully just but he's also merciful and he has that perfect combination that I can't wrap my brain around Mm -hmm. So I can trust 
that he's got the best for everyone in mind. Yeah. And I can trust that, that his mercy and his love and his grace mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. are going to yeah. meet with his justice somehow in a way that I don't understand. Yeah. And whether it's, gee, that person did somehow in some way we can't figure out, reborn, sure. know the Holy Spirit, right. or whatever. And there's, there's an argument among even those that are more into the Reformed camp that would say, you know, were they elect infants or were they non-elect infants? When I, and my belief is that proof that they were elect is that God took them, that all, all the infants were elect, or they were already, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah if you go to Spurgeon.org, you can get any of his sermons. <laughs> Just go to Spurgeon.org, type in. Yeah, I mean, that's a difficult situation because you're almost creating two categories of salvation because the, the, the argument that some people would say, well, if it's true for the babies, then why isn't it true for the adults? Why are they held accountable, but these aren't? Um, and Paul says they're, they're without excuse because they look up and they see the creation, but they've suppressed the truth. And that's a, that's a, hard, that's a hard truth to accept. Because I guarantee you, maybe not in this church because we've taught on it enough, that there, and even, and even maybe be in this room and you still struggle with that, but I, if we had a larger pool of evangelical Christians and I would ask that question, I think you'd be surprised how many people would not, would not hold to that. Because we don't want to, we don't want to, it's, it's hard saying, it's a hard truth. We don't want to, we don't want to say that. That's why missions is so important. Why do we go to India and preach the gospel to people who have never heard? Okay. They've been chosen, but they haven't heard what it is they're chosen for, you know. Yeah, and if we if I went to India not believing that if I went to India and didn't believe in lostness, I mean, the reason I go there to India and preach is because these people without Christ are dying and going to hell. Whether they're in India or whether they're your next door neighbor, it's the same thing. People are dying and going to hell without Christ. It just so happens that in India they don't have the chance that you have here. Here you can turn on TBN. I don't recommend it. Or you could um, go to a... I do recommend going to the Bible Lighthouse. You can go to the Bible Lighthouse. You can go to the Internet. You, you've got total... It's not an issue of... It's an issue of access. People here in America have access. People in unreached people groups don't have the access, and that's why there's a burden to go to people that don't have the access. That's why we go there. Somebody had a question over here. Cindy or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the on the sin of, homo, of homosexual um, fornication. But what I want to to tell you there is that before you pick on the sin of homosexuality, verses 29 through 32, chapter one. Sorry, we're back to Romans chapter one. Paul lists a whole bunch of other sins there. And they all come as a result of this exchanging the glory of God for idolatry. Look at verse 28. Since they, did not fit to, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There's that God gave them up again. To a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Tell us what you really feel, Paul. And he's like not leaving anything out. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So all sin 
regardless of whether it's homosexual, regardless of whether it's murder, being haughty, being boastful, being disobedient to parents, being heartless, strife, all sin is punishable because it's an offense to God and you're exchanging the glory of God for created things. So Romans chapter 1, basically Paul's laying a case saying, God has made himself known to creation. Humans have suppressed that knowledge. And instead of when they suppress it, what pops up in its place is a thing, a created thing. Whether it's a relationship or whether it's an actual created thing, you end up worshiping that instead of the creator. And it's an inverted glory, an inverted exchange. And therefore, you're held accountable and you're under God's wrath. Okay, yes, Brent. I heard a fascinating story about uh, the Incan leader, um, Viracocha. And Viracocha, have you heard it? No. Well, Don't know who he was, is. This was before the Spaniards came in. And Viracocha, he was sitting one day and he was praying to the sun god. And he saw the sunrise. And he said, there's something greater than that sun. And as the leader, he actually went to the people and said, we need to worship the creator that made this sun versus the sun. He changed them completely, the entire nation, and basically made them pre-Christian, if you want to say that. And it was the reason why they were waiting for somebody to come to them. And it was the reason why they gave up so easily to the Spaniards. Did a missionary come and explain to them that it was the yeah, living the God? Catholic, the Catholic priest did. Interesting. But because of it, it's also the reason why they were killed so easily by Cesaro. Because he came in, and he heard about this, and he took advantage of it. Very interesting. Yes, Paula. I'm coming back here because of the microphone. Oh, okay. Um, it told about uh, Gladys Allward, who was mm-hmm. a missionary, that she had um, an experience like that. She felt the Lord lead her to a distant, distant place. And when she got there, they were waiting for her because they had had um, mm-hmm. the Great Commission on a piece of paper. Yeah. And they said, it says, you know, go into the world. So they mm-hmm. were waiting for her to come. Yeah, at the Mini Mountain Adventure, we showed a little cartoon of Gladys Allward. Mm-hmm. And she went, in, she went to India to rescue the girls from the Hindu temples. And these people were waiting for the white-faced woman because they'd heard, yeah, interesting. Anything else? Um, at this rate, guys, we may just spend one more week on Romans because we went through chapter one, unless you guys were maybe two or three. Um, yes, another question. This isn't really a question. It's a, it's a comment really on a buddy trail, so feel free okay. to Okay, it's not a snide remark, though? Okay. <laughs> it's not a snide remark. Okay. Well, maybe it's a snide okay. remark. Okay. Um, when we read this stuff, and when we look at this, and then we look at the last couple days, um, one of the things that I'm kind of coming to a peace with, I think, is, first off, it feels like we're being called into battle, so mm-hmm. that's kind of exciting and different. Um, little scary. But secondly, there, there's two pieces to, I think, why we're where we're at in our country. So if you don't want to go with That's fine. a current... No. No, we one can... is, I think we as a church, um, all of us who call ourselves mm-hmm. believers, we're looking at, what, probably about three or four generations of church that have basically been teaching morality, mm-hmm. not teaching... Gospel. Gospel. 
And because of that, we have a country where everybody thinks Christianity is thou shalt and thou shalt not, but they have nothing connected to it. Secondly, very good point. We are in clearly a post-Christian country, um, and the good news to that is, when you're in a when you're in a moral country that has the verbiage but doesn't have the understanding, it's not real black and white. It's very very gray, and it's very very difficult mm -hmm. to share because everybody thinks they're on the same page with you. We are now entering a very black and white country. So we haven't been very good salt and light, but when it's pitch black, boy, does light shine. Mm -hmm. And I'm really thinking that on the plus side, yeah, it's going to be a lot harder. And yes, you know, clearly you'd rather be in, in a country that is, that is under God's blessing and that has peace and that you mm -hmm. have ease to do what you want to do. But, and, and I think back when I was in college, I was in Japan for a summer. I had more culture shock coming home than I did in Japan because in Japan it was black and white. Mm -hmm. You're a Christian, you've given up everything, and you are strong in your faith. Right. Or you're not. Right. And you came here and everything was gray. Right. We're entering a black and white time. Mm -hmm. And so I look at it and I think there, there's going to be a call on the church. And for years people have been praying for, for revival. Well, revival starts at home. Revival starts with cleaning the church. How do you clean a church out? You make it really ugly to be in it. And if it's ugly to be there, <laughs> then, then, okay, then I'm here because of more than right, right. comfort. And then if I'm here for more than comfort, then I'm going to be salt and I'm going to be light to those right. around me. And then there's going to be an impact on the culture. Uh, and let me, let me give an observation. Um, we look at the, if you look at the electoral map, it almost seems like there's the parentheses and there's the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you guys, and I say you guys because I haven't grown up in Sterling, but you guys that have kind of been in the northeastern Colorado bubble of rural America um, may be shocked that the rest of the country thinks wacky. Living in Colorado Springs, interacting in Denver, and going to a secular college, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I find it harder, this is me personally, to witness to a person in northeastern Colorado that's grown up Lutheran or Catholic than to witness to a Buddhist or to a New Ager because the person, there's two categories. There's the de-churched and there's the unchurched. In Sterling in northeastern Colorado, we have the de-churched. People that grew up Catholic or Lutheran that think they're a Christian because they went to St. Anthony's their whole life or they they think they're saved because by 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 virtue of being Growing up in Sterling and going to church and, and, and like Christmas and Easter or whatever, knowing about, I love God, country, apple pie, you know. The unchurched are those that have no Christian history that have never been in church and thus don't have any of the Christian baggage or any of the Christian lingo. We, I think, in our immediate culture are living in a de-churched culture. The rest of the nation is becoming more of an unchurched culture. To the de-churched culture, like you said, it's hard because... They already think they're in. In the unchurched culture, they could care less, and they know they're not in. So you're starting in a different background, and then you go all the way to India, where there's like there's no there's like there's there's Hinduism, you know, or whatever. So I think that um, your points are very well taken, and I think it it means that I guess the the hardest thing for me was I've seen this coming for years. This is the most palpable and tangible expression of that all at once. 
it wasn't like it happened in waves. It was kind of like, boom, it all happened at once. And it's kind of like you feel like you got hit in the face when you kind of, like, it's kind of like the roller coaster, you know, when you're waiting to go up and you're like, oh, it's going to come, it's going to come, it's going to come, and I'm so scared. And then when it goes down, it's like, whoa. You know, we've been on this roller coaster, I think, for, for many years now. But like yesterday, it's like, whoa, we just went down. And it's kind of like your stomach is way up here. And I think that that's where the shock comes. I think we've all inten- intrinsically known it's happening, but to happen so fast and to see it vis- visibly across our nation is where it's gotten that. that as I, I don't know if I'm rambling, but that's kind of my, my thought process. The sad part is most people don't see it that way. Well, we do have, yeah. Especially people do, but I mean the world as a whole. Yeah. Well, we have a divided nation. And it's, I mean, when the election is that close, you've got two different visions for America. Um, plus, I read today, there were 12 million less voters this year than there were in 2008. And those were people that probably didn't like either candidate and sat out because they didn't like the alternative. And so you just wonder who those 12 million were and, and what can it, I mean, we can prognosticate all day. The, the biggest issue is that, you know, God's still on his throne. He's called us to be salt and light. We don't need to fret. We don't need to fear. We're not hopeless. Um, we're confident because God is in control. It doesn't mean that things aren't comfortable. It doesn't mean that we may not lose some freedoms. It just means that um, we're going to have to be more strategic and more missional and more on the ball in what God does. And as a church, Don and I were talking about this at lunch or at dinner you know, if the economy tanks and there's major, major needs, when is the church going to step up and be the church? It may be that the church actually has to do what the church should be doing all along and be a support system to each other and really be the church, which is, I don't look forward to those days, but it may be exciting to see how God uses his church to help. So. That's good.